downstairs. Don't know why you don't want to hang out up here and go through Ecclesiastes with me. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, we started a new series in Ecclesiastes that I'm excited to be going through with you. It's our first Old Testament book that I've had the privilege to to preach through with you guys, and I'm very excited about that. Um, I think there's a lot to offer in this letter that was written probably 10th century B.C., how how amazing it is that in 2021 it's so uh, so consistent with where we find ourselves in and the culture that we have that um, a, a common and ultimate belief that that life there is no ultra ultra meaning or purpose in life that we're just here by accident that we're just random uh, physiological um, processes going on chemical processes going on and uh, we're just uh, there's just no meaning, there's no God, uh, we're just here by chance, and we see the, the consequences of that thought uh, being played out in our culture as uh, truth is no longer uh, embraced as what has, how God has given it, and we see the decay, uh, the, the rapid decay of our culture as they turn their backs on God. And so Ecclesiastes is, an, is a letter. This is from the wisdom literature, right? There's different genres in the Bible. This is wisdom literature. This is uh, not necessarily a historical narrative, but this is Solomon, God using Solomon, the Spirit using Solomon to write this book to, to provide us wisdom. And, and we've encountered a few things even in chapter 1 where God has given Solomon wisdom, and he says that all life and labor under the sun is futile, it's vain. And we know Solomon is the king of God's people, so we know that, that Solomon knows God, and so we have to understand that he's trying to argue from the negative here, that he's trying to give us wisdom in an ironic way. He's trying to demonstrate to us that life and labor under the sun without the, the, the concept or precept that God is at the center, and it's in his meaning and his purposes that we find meaning and purpose in our life. If we are just here to labor away without having God at the center of our lives, life is without purpose. We are laboring under the sun for no meaning. And that's what his, this book is demonstrating to us. And so we went through, he, he gives us the conclusion right away that everything absolutely futile, says the teacher, absolutely everything is futile or vain. It's like grasping at air. The, the Hebrew word that they use there is for, for vapor. And I, I can just imagine, right, we um, trying to find meaning and purpose in life without God at the center is like trying to, oh, meaning and purpose is this. And so you go over there and you, you go to grasp it and it's just like grasping that air. And that's what life is under the sun without God at its center. And so he's taken us on a journey. And so he has in chapter two here, he's he's going to pursue the meaning and purpose of life through pleasure also known as hedonism. And he's going to demonstrate to us that finding meaning and purpose just by seeking pleasure in this life is also futile. Hedonism means this. It's a, a belief that's held, that holds that happiness or pleasure constitutes the chief goal in life. That all we are doing, all we, where there is no purpose, so we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry and find as much pleasure as possible. And that's the meaning. And he says... He's, in chapter 2, he shows us, he set out to demonstrate, to see if that were the case. And this is what he tells us, verses 1 through 11. 
the word of the Lord says this, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pole of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of king, or the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. And he concludes here in verse 11, When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had what I'd labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your throne. Lord, is just grateful, Father, for this opportunity to sing to you, Father, to sing of your faithfulness this morning, God. You're, you're so faithful. You're so trustworthy. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you've, uh, you've made yourself known. You've revealed yourself to us in your word and and not only who you are, but how we can have relationship with you and be re- uh, to be uh, re- regenerated and saved and, and be adopted into your family. You've made your rescue mission known to us through your word. And we're here with, uh, with grateful hearts, God, that you've made a way not only to save us, but uh, made a way for us to live our life out in, with meaning and purpose as we seek to glorify you. We seek to glorify you this morning, God, and what is preached. And I ask, Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts. I ask, Father, that your spirit would use me as a, uh, as a means to communicate your truth and that um, you would give us ears to hear, Father, what you have for us individually so that collectively as a church we can be made stronger and more effective for your use, God. We need you. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so we have a very another very encouraging portion of scripture, right? I'm sure you came to church to be encouraged this morning, but again, this is a, this is really good uh, good um, argumentation as to why we stand in this this society, why we stand, should stand in our culture. This is what our culture is embracing as truth that there is no meaning, and everyone is just out for themselves. Everything um, is defined as right on, in everybody's own eyes all these things that we're seeing. And, and so we stand firm in God's truth and, and we can declare to our culture around us that, that, the, that the current 
philosophy of man is, is, is bunk and only true meaning and purpose can be found as we seek and center ourselves around God and his purposes. But as we get into this, let's just review what Solomon has written here in verses 2. So he gives us uh, the, the testing of the meaning of life, and he gives us the conclusion right away in verses 1 and 2 as he tests the meaning of life through pleasure. He says, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure and enjoy what is good. And this is his conclusion, but it turned out to be futile, like grasping at air. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? In the end, pleasure and laughter doesn't accomplish anything. It's just fleeting. It's temporary. And if your meaning and purpose in life is to seek pleasure and laughter, then you're just always going to be looking for more because it doesn't ever satisfy. And so he tells us in verse 3 that he sets out to, to seek pleasure in um, intoxicating substances, in this case, wine. Verse 3, I explored my mind, the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And this is a really good example of him, uh, Solomon using irony, uh, the ironic usage of wisdom. Because in other, his other letter, his other books, that he's given us other wisdom literature. Solomon is the author of most of the Proverbs. And we see him saying the exact opposite about wine. He, in Ecclesiastes, he uses wine to try to find pleasure. And then in the Proverbs, he's using, uh, he warns his son about those who abuse wine and intoxicating substances. And so Actually, when he's referring to wisdom in Ecclesiastes, he's using irony. He's using a word, and he's meaning the exact opposite of it. It's not wisdom that he's doing here. It's folly. It's foolishness to try to find pleasure through intoxicating substances. And this is what he says here in Proverbs 23. He says, listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your mind on the right course. Do not associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor, and grogginess will clothe them in rags. And so I just need to pull out, since we've come to this, that it doesn't prohibit, the Bible does not prohibit, the consumption of alcohol, unless you're a Nazarite. If you take a Nazarite vow, yes, and it also warns that kings shouldn't do it either, because they need to keep a sharp head. But the Bible does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol, and so I think the Bible opens it up for all of us to have our own personal convictions about alcohol and what, how, if we consume it and, and all those things, but what the Bible is very clear about is the abuse of alcohol and being drunk with alcohol. That it clearly forbids that, because ultimately Paul says, be not drunk with wine, because it's excess, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So by going to wine and being consumed and controlled by alcohol is ultimately saying, uh, you know, you're, you're giving up your right to be controlled and filled with the Spirit. You're going to be controlled by something. And wisdom says be controlled by the Spirit because that's God's best. And so everyone needs to decide for themselves their own convictions that we had some good conversations last night. You know, some say, you know, I don't, I don't do moderation in anything, so I'm not going to touch alcohol. Or I grew up in a family that had a, alcohol in their home, and they saw the ill effects of it, and so they, they refrained. But 
What I don't want to say is the Bible says do not drink it. It's completely forbidden because it doesn't. Jesus' first miracle was the creation of wine, and it was really good wine. And so we got to be careful not to add rules on top of rules like uh, we see those in the, in the Bible to do. So they're up their own conviction, but obviously the Bible is very clear. We don't want to be uh, to the point where we're abusing alcohol or any to- intoxicating substance um, because it is folly. It is foolishness. Verse 21, for the drunkard will, uh, I already read that one. So Proverbs 29, verses 29 through 35, this is Solomon's warning again. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Whose eyes are red? Who are these people that have these things consistent in their life? His conclusion, those who linger over wine. Those who look for mixed wine. And so he warns his son, don't gaze at wine because it is res, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. He's like, look, it's alluring. It, it, it's not prohibited, but it, it, it has a dangerous potential. It looks so good. It's all red, and it goes down so smoothly. But in the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will... will your eyes will see strange things and will say absurd things. Everyone that has been around someone that's inebriated or intoxicated knows that this is the case, right? They say strange and absurd things. They, we all have had that experience, I'm sure. He goes on to warn, you'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, says someone who abuses wine, but I feel no pain. All right, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. That's what alcohol does. And when, it, when will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. And so he's, he's pointing to the fact that those who, who use intoxicating substance as a means to find pleasure and purpose, that, right, to, to numb their reality, ultimately it's like a viper. It's poison. And it makes them to the point where all they're doing is looking for the next drink. They're looking for the next place to find pleasure in and to be numbed from their reality. You ask any drug addict, um, their pursuit is trying to chase their first high. The first high was the best high. And then they spend the rest of their lives trying to find that first high. And that's their, that becomes their pursuit. And so, yes, alcohol is not forbidden in the Bible unless you're taking the Nazarite vow, but it also can be very dangerous. And you need to arrive at your own convictions as to far as to how you would use alcohol in your life. All right. Moving on here. And so he says in uh, uh, verse 3 that he tries to find pleasure through intoxicating substances like wine. And then in verses 4 through 7, he seeks to find pleasure through creating and acquisition of things, right? So he's trying to find pleasure under the sun in building things and acquiring things. He says, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants 
So he's built things, he's created all this stuff, and now he's acquiring things. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my own household. I also own livestock in that society. That would be a, a sign of a very wealthy person. Slaves and servants and livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And so he seeks to find pleasure in building and acquiring. And I think it's interesting that he is trying to do what God, we find again, we find this juxtaposition with Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created and it was good. It wasn't just good, it was very good. And God planted and, and God did these things. And so we see Solomon here trying to be, really be his own God. He's, he's the one, remember, see the, the eyes there? I constructed, I made gardens, I increased in achievements. He's, he's trying to establish his own Garden of Eden. He's trying to find pleasure in this world by through his own labor and building his own self. And what is this conclusion? It's all futile. And we see the difference, the irony that's being played out in Genesis where God, God created it. It was really good. But then the fall happened. And now we are stuck in this world that is surrounded in evil and darkness and the curse of the, of the fall uh, follows us today. We're born and separated from our God. And, and Ecclesiastes, we noted last week that it's really a, Ecclesiastes a demonstration of the consequences of the fall. Because Solomon had all this stuff. He bought all these things. He built all these things. He created his own gardens. And it was folly. He found no ultimate meaning and pleasure in it. I remember when I was going through Bible college back in 2010, we were in California and L.A., and it was uh, like 18% unemployment, so I had a hard time finding a, a good-paying job, and I was going to Bible college, and, and that, was, that was interesting, trying to raise a family in L.A., and 18% unemployment, <laughs> going to Bible college. But um, I, and I'm probably repeating my story. So this is my third year that I've been here this weekend. This is, marks the three years now. And so I, at this point, I'm just taking, I'm taking, uh, you're going to have to listen to my stories repeated, okay? So I only have a set amount of stories, and so you might have heard this before, but that's all right. Thank you. Appreciate that, Betty. So I was going to Bible college, and, and I think the Lord, so I got this job um, installing high-end um, telephone systems in law offices in, in Santa Monica and different different companies all throughout Southern, Southern California, but it also uh, um, installed them in really rich people's houses. Like they have mansions that they need to be able to bring their, their, you know, their help and all that stuff. And so I, I went to this, this, this guy's house on the very top of uh, Beverly Hills, and it was a gated community, and so I had to be rang in through the security guard, and then I went down to his, his mansion, and he had his own personal security gate, so I had to get rang into there, and then I went into his, his thing, and there was like, I said seven last night, and I might have been blown out of proportion, but it was at least five Ferraris, different colors, out front. And the guy that was, you know, knew I was coming because he'd been called twice by the security people, so he was outside waiting for him. Like, I was like, man, those are some nice cars. He's like, those are his drivers, his daily drivers. The really expensive ones are, in the, are kept in the garage. I'm like, whoa, man, this guy's got a lot of money. So I get in and I, I do my work, but I, I was there probably once or twice a month for two years. 
And I, each time I would encounter this man, and this man was the grumpiest, most dissatisfied person I've ever met in my life. Every time I, was, I went there so often because he was always building. He was always adding on to his mansion. He was never satisfied <laughs> with what he had. He was always building. And he, he might have had some good moments. He, he might have just been grumpy just because he saw me. I mean, that happens to some of you, right? You see me, you instantly become grumpy. I don't know. But every time I saw him, he seemed dissatisfied and mad and, at the world. And he had all the money the world could offer him. And it was an important lesson for me because I had a lot of time in L.A. traffic struggling, making, you know, $15 an hour, trying to figure out how I was going to get through Bible college and raise a family. And, and God, it would just be nice if I had a little extra money. And God used that man to demonstrate to me that money does not bring satisfaction. Money does not bring pleasure. I saw it for myself. He was the most dissatisfied man I've ever seen. And he might, like I said, I've only I was, had limited encounters, so uh, he, he might have had another life, but every time I saw him, that's what I saw. It's like if, if money truly brought happiness and pleasure, this guy would be the happiest guy on earth, and he never demonstrated that to be so. And so it was an important lesson for me that pleasure or satisfaction and the meaning of life doesn't come through acquiring things as Solomon is teaching us here. And so he acquires and builds all these things. He tries to create his own Garden of Eden to escape the realities of life, and it's all futile. And then he finds, he seeks to find pleasure through lust, right? Pleasure through lust. And lust can, can come in many forms, not just sexual lust, but it can be the lust of money, wanting, wanting more, having been fixated on something so much that that consumes your every moment. That's what lust kind of, produces and so he finds he seems or he seeks pleasure through lust i have also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces he not only had silver and gold but he had the treasures of other kings and provinces at his disposal i gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines the delights of men we can all conclude what that means he had everything at his disposal to pursue his lusts And he goes on in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. He had everything this world has to offer. He goes on, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. And then he gives us his conclusion as he's seeked all these things out, the worldly pleasures, the lust of life, all these things. And when I considered in verse 11 all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so this wisdom literature is teaching us and hopefully our children that, look, this world wants to throw promises at you that you'll find success and happiness and pleasure in this life by by partaking and consuming what the world has to offer but that is not the case because we as we concluded last week solomon's problem is demonstrated by where he begins and ends in his quest for meaning 
That's his problem is he's beginning with himself and he's ending with himself. He's trying to find pleasure and meaning in and of himself in his own work, in his own labors. And as we demonstrated last week, the true wisdom is found that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon's problem was he began by seeking pleasure in and of himself and ending his pleasures, his desires in and of himself when Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. It is the fear of the Lord, the understanding that God has created us and we have meaning and purpose in his his purposes and his creation. That is where we as humans will find true purpose and meaning is living with God at the center. Colossians was the first book I had the privilege to preach through with with uh, you guys here at Falls Baptist Church. And this is Norma Jean. Everyone knows Norma Jean. She's um, out at home. I've been in bed since January. And, but this is the passage of Scripture she, she has me read to her often. She loves this passage of Scripture because it just boldly portrays Jesus for who he truly is. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know God, if you want to understand God, God has made himself known in Jesus. God the Spirit has, has, has sent Jesus into this world, the second person of our triune God. And he, rep- he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. He takes preeminence, first place in all things over all creation. It is about Jesus. For everything was created by him, by Jesus, in heaven and on earth. The stars that we see were created by our God, by Jesus. The visible and invisible, whether the the things that we see, the the spiritual realm, all the things have been created by God. Our existence is defined and created by Jesus, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And when I read that verse, I just got to throw this in there. That's when I I read that verse and I'm just, thank God that I am not... uh, have to worry about what's going on because Jesus is in control. God is sovereign over his creation. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The problem with humanity is we always start with ourselves. There's a whole... I don't want to be ungracious, but there's a whole sect of Christianity that plays to this. That it starts with you and your happiness and your, your desires and, and you don't have enough money in your bank account because you don't have enough faith and you need to show your faith by sending me money. It's a bunch of bunk because it starts with us and it doesn't start with us. It starts with Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. All things were created by Him and for Him. And if we live our life with that paradigm, with those lenses, that is when we find our true meaning and purpose in this life. Because we're living for his glory. We live to give Jesus the glory due his name. And in that, that's what we were designed for. This world throws all this other stuff at us. Seek pleasure here and here. And we never are satisfied because we were designed to worship our God in spirit and in truth. To be living sacrifices to him. And the promise of Scripture is that we align ourselves with that mentality, with that principle, with that paradigm, the lens that we look through. That is when we will find pleasure. 
and joy and meaning and purpose. There is no other way. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 8, if you continue in my words, in my teachings, you will be, you are my disciples indeed. So this salvation, right, doesn't just end with a prayer and we just, we're, we're going to get to heaven someday and we can live our lives trying to seek pleasure out in this world. He says, if you continue in my word and my teachings and my truth, you are my disciples indeed. So we must continue in his teachings and truth. We must follow after Jesus and keep him at the center. His promise in John chapter 8 is, if you do these things, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That is what God desires for us. To find meaning and purpose in Him. To live for His glory. And the promises given to us by this world are just uh, designs of, of demonic designs of trying to distract us from what is truly meaningful and purposeful. And so God calls us to pursue what is called Christian hedonism. The title of this sermon was uh, embracing hedonism. And as Christians, we are to embrace Christian hedonism. Or it's, a, it's a term coined by John Piper in a book that he wrote back in the 80s called Desiring God. And so, and so he's looking at the culture and he's saying, I see all these Christians, even Christians, pursuing the things of this world, being hedonistic, trying to find their satisfaction in the pleasures offered by this world. And what we need to get them to see is that they can only find pleasure by pursuing not pleasure of this world, but by pursuing God desiring God and his purposes. And so he, he used that word Christian hedonism to, to wake us up to the fact that, and this is his famous quote, God is most glorified. Because if it starts and ends with him, our purpose is to glorify him. And we can most glorify, glorify God when we are most satisfied in him. When we find our satisfaction in God and his purposes. Christian hedonism, this is a quote of his book, is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in this world and his ultimate goal is his glory and our deepest desire, and that our deepest desire is to have pleasure and to be happy, are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So finding our pleasure and seeking to glorify God, becoming a Christian hedonist, finding pleasure by seeking to glorify God in our lives. That is what's truly important. I think I lost my ability to advance my slides. That must be say, saying oh, it's time for me to wrap up, huh? All right. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10.31 is where I'm trying to be. Thank you very much. So the New Testament context, right? We're trying to bring application to us today. And so the Ecclesiastes is written in the Old Testament context. We, God has revealed, has progressively revealed his ultimate plan, his complete plan of salvation and rescue in, in the entirety in the Old and New Testaments. And so this is what Paul says about uh, the things of this world. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So whatever you eat, whatever you drink, like when we go down, we, we say a prayer over the meal. What are we ultimately doing there? I hope our heart is that we're giving God glory for his providence and sustaining us. And the food before us is because of his gracious hand. 
And so we're acknowledging him as the giver of all that is good in our prayer. We give God the glory for it. We go out, and I'm not saying you, can't, you have to be poor to be a good Christian. You, you can have money. You, you can build things. You can, you can do all those things. But, but is it for you or is it for God's glory? You go out in this nature. nature. You, I know there's people that, that make gardens here and, and take great pride in, in their gardens. And that is a beautiful thing. But as Christians, it doesn't just stop at the garden and for us to enjoy, right? That glory, the, 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 the ability to give God the glory for, for what has been produced is what our desire should be as Christians. To use money, not just for ourselves, but for God's glory, for God's kingdom. To give Him the glory the, and to recognize that He's the giver of all that is good. So that's the difference between the, the, the Solomon's got an I problem, right? He's like, I did all these things. It's all about me. I'm taking credit for all these things. When a Christian says, God, you've given this to me. And I want to reflect your glory and your goodness through these gifts that you've given me. I want to glorify you and what you've done for me. And that's, that's the difference. You, uh, Piper has a great analogy in his book about uh, a guy who um, brings flowers home to his wife and gives the flowers to his wife. And she's like, oh, that is so sweet of you. Why did you do this? And he says, out of duty. Right? Most wives will just throw those flowers back in his face. It's like, I don't want those just because you feel like you're obligated to do it. But that's how Christianity often feels like. We do things out of obligation, out of duty. When God has so much more for us to, to live our life for Him and to glorify Him. He says in Romans 14, 17 through 18, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. All right, my heart's desire for our church is that we're not a church that defines ourselves by what we don't do. But it's about what we do, what we're doing in this world, in this community. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness, peace, and joy. What in the Holy Spirit? It's about what we're doing through the enabling power of the Spirit. Not about what we're not doing or not eating or not drinking. We're doing these things. We're enabling God, the Spirit, to work in our lives for His glory. He goes on to say, whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. That is what can mark us out in this world. What makes us different? When people are outside looking in, what do they see? A group of people who keep a bunch of rules or a group of people that are seeking to glorify God in their, in their walk? Not perfectly, but seeking to do so. Psalm 37, 3 through 6 says this. And these are great words to, to, to hold on to this morning, to take with us. Trust in the Lord. So Psalm 37, 3 through 6. And do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Do you see how the psalmist is pointing us to, to focusing and starting with God? Seek him. Take delight in God. Take delight in the Lord. And he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act, making your righteousness 
shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. That's our call. To not seek pleasure in what this world has to offer, but seek pleasure in pursuing God. Putting God at the center of our lives. And so my question to you, my call to you is, how about you? How are you doing in this journey? What God has called you to do? And I can't stand up here and give you a long list of things that you need to do for yourself. It's between you and the Spirit of God. Where, where are you in this? If you're finding dissatisfaction in life, if you don't have pleasure and meaning and happiness, what, what, what's, what's it's between you and the Spirit. You, you guys, this, is, this is the opportunity for us to take, to take what God's teaching and apply it to our lives. How about you? And that requires you to, to spend some time alone with God, reorienting yourself to the things of Him. It's between you and Him. I can't, I can't give you a list of things. You, you have to do it. And I'm saying this. I'm pointing back at myself, right? I, I have to preach this sermon, so I, ha- I have to apply these things. I, can, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I have to apply. Where am I at in my walk? I need to love people more like Jesus loves people. I have many things to, to reorient myself and live for God for His glory and not uh, be distracted by what this world throws at us. And so I pray that you would take this time as we enter in this time of a partaking of the Lord's Supper that you might reflect on this teaching. And where are you in this walk, this journey, where God desires you to turn from the pleasures of this world to find ultimate satisfaction in Him and Him alone? That is my prayer for all of us so let's pray father god we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word we thank you for the convicting uh, nature in which you've presented uh, the true meaning and purpose of life father that you've given us in jesus and we're so grateful god to be able to pursue jesus through the enabling power of your spirit and so we just call out to you as um, vessels full of holes god and ask for your feeling that we would be indeed be the people you've called us to be through your strength and your power, and that you might be glorified in our lives, Father, and that in doing so, as you are glorified in our lives, Father, that we might uh, find enjoyment and pleasure um, seeking to do what you've designed us to do. May it so be in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing a song called A Hymn of Heaven.